John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas and high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you uh, for your nature. Um, Thank you that Jesus shows us your nature. Thank you that you are the God who is both holy and far away, but also who comes close to us. And so we pray that you would come close to us this morning. Might we see Jesus more clearly? And as we see him, perhaps we hope, we pray, more as he is than as we may imagine him. We pray that you would help us to love him more. And we ask that in his name. Amen. Now, whether you've been coming to church all your life, or whether maybe this is your first Sunday in church ever. What do you think of when you think of Jesus? What do you think he was like? Even as those who come to church regularly, I think we can often have quite an unanalyzed idea of who Jesus was of what he was like. Uh, For for many um, in our culture, it's quite easy to stick with those stories of Jesus that we heard at primary school, Um, always the miracles, um, the stained glass windows. We have a slightly unusual uh, stained glass window here. Um, Not sure why Jesus is blonde and beardless. Um, That's probably not what he looked like, uh, being a Middle Eastern Jewish man 2,000 years ago. Um, So when I say imagine him, not so much what did he look like, but what was he like? 
Again, try and picture it in your mind. What would it have been like to have been around him? What was his character? How did he treat people? Well, our summer series is called uh, Things We Love About Jesus or Why We Love Jesus. And this came out of a conference uh, that Steve and I were at um, in July. And uh, one of the speakers there, he started off and he got a flip chart and it was a room full of uh, vicars and ministers. And he said, you know, what are the things that you love about Jesus? And we thought, well, that's a great idea for a summer sermon series. Um, And so that's what we've adopted but this was, this uh, chapter in, um, uh, in John, uh, this section in John 18, uh, was the bit that sprang to mind for me as one of the things that I love about Jesus. Um, as is so often the way, I'd actually sort of mixed it up with another passage in my mind, so it both had things that happen in this passage and things that happen um, in Matthew um, that I thought all happened in this passage, and then I looked it up and went, oh, that's a shame. Um, what I wanted to say isn't what the Bible actually says. I'll have to say what the Bible actually says instead of what I thought it was uh, in my head. But why is it that I love this? Well, because here in this passage we see, and some other passages we're going to look at, we see what um, uh, an old preacher uh, called the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Jesus' admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. And what that means is, because I see a few faces sort of going, what does that mean? It means that in Jesus, we see together characteristics that you wouldn't normally expect to see in one person. We see someone who is strong and powerful. And we see that in this chapter. They come to arrest Jesus. And verse 5, Jesus, well, verse 4 says to them, Who is it you want? Verse 5, they say, Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That is strange. That is power. There was something in the power of Jesus' words that when these soldiers came to arrest Jesus and he declared his name, and as you may know by saying, I am That was the covenant name of God from the Old Testament. He was declaring himself to be God. And the soldiers draw back and they fall to the ground. Absolute power. And the passage that I was mixing at one was from from Matthew, um, where this, uh, we're told it this way, uh, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear, that we also get here. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think that I can't call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That is, I don't need to be arrested. I'm choosing to be arrested. I could call down an army to defend me. Absolute power, absolute strength. And yet, he goes with them. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be taken away. And why? out of love for us so that he might die in our place. Well, why is this so amazing? There's a a quote attributed to Abraham Lincoln, which is this. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Sorry for the non-gender neutral language. Obviously, it's quite quite an old quote. Uh, Nearly everyone 
can stand adversity, can suffer through difficulty, but if you really want to test someone's character, give them power. Nothing discloses real character like the use of power. It is easy for weak people to be gentle. It is easy for weak people to submit, not to force their will upon others, because they can't. They haven't got the power to do so. And it's easy for many of us to think that possibly we are better than we are. We think that we've never done truly awful things to people, possibly because we never had the power to do so. What would you do if you had power? Or possibly slightly terrifyingly, think back to your school days. Primary school, secondary school. What would you have done if you had had absolute power? What would you have done to the bullies if you were the kind of person who was bullied? What would you have done to the weak kids if you were the kind of person who was a bully? I look back glad that I did not have power at that time. Or even just the perfect comeback. You know, when someone says something to you and they cut you down and they win and then they walk away and later that evening you come up with the best comeback. But it's too late and next time you see them they've forgotten about it and you've missed the opportunity completely. Whereas Jesus, he was God. He was perfect. He could have had the perfect comeback every single time. And what makes a good comeback? Knowing someone's weakness and pressing on it. Knowing the thing that will really get to them. And Jesus has complete knowledge. He knows our hearts. He knows our minds. He could have absolutely cut anybody down to size. But we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, when Jesus was reviled, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. That God did not use his power for his own benefit, but he used it for the benefit of others. He used it in gentleness. Well, how did you picture Jesus. We've thought a little bit about power, a little bit about gentleness. I've been um, rereading some of this book um, as I was preparing for this talk. Um, if you've not read it, I would recommend it. I love it. It's brilliant. The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. Slight sort of health warning. It's the only one of Yancey's books with maybe what's so amazing about grace. Only those two that I'd recommend. I think in the other ones he goes a bit speculative uh, in some of the things that he says. But The Jesus I Never Knew is a wonderful book. He's sort of saying, it's so easy for us, 2,000 years on, with this you know, already developed idea of Jesus is this really significant person in history, at least, all of us think that, or Jesus is the Son of God, if you're a Christian believer, that's what you think, and looking back and reading the Gospels through that lens. But what if you'd been one of the disciples? What if you'd been just a regular first century Jewish believer who thought that God lived in heaven, the temple was the place where you met him, and no human could have the powers of God. And then you meet this guy, and he teaches like no one you've ever come across before. And then he does things that make no sense. And you think, could this be? Could this be the guy who is the Messiah? 
and then he dies and then he rises and slowly, slowly their eyes being opened and Yancey goes back and kind of goes through and says what would it have been like to have experienced that? But in his introduction, looking back and talking about um, the view that so many of us can easily have of Jesus, he writes this. It's sort of the, the Jesus of our minds. Jesus recites his lines evenly and without emotion. He strides through life as the one calm character among a cast of flustered extras. Nothing rattles Jesus. He dispenses wisdom in flat, measured tones. He is, in short, the Prozac Jesus. But that is not what Jesus is like. Jesus is, if anything, more emotional, more outlandish, more personality than the average person. He weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps publicly, openly at the, friend, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And then he lambasts the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day, for their oppression of the people. Yancey goes on, he says, By contrast, the Gospels present a man who has such charisma that people will sit three days straight without food just to hear his riveting words. He seems excitable, impulsively, moved with compassion or filled with pity. The Gospels reveal a range of Jesus' emotional responses, sudden sympathy for a person with leprosy, exuberance over his disciples' success, a blast of anger at cold-hearted legalists, grief over an unreceptive city, and then those awful cries of anguish in Gethsemane and on the cross. Jesus had nearly inexhaustible patience with individuals, but no patience at all with institutions and injustice. And we see again and again in the Gospels this admirable conjunction of Jesus' diverse excellencies. We saw it last week um, in John 4, that these, uh, these men, the Pharisees, brought this woman to Jesus and they said she deserves to be stoned, she's been caught in the act of adultery. And Jesus was strong in the face of this. He refused to back down before the Pharisees. He forced them to back down, forced them to back away. But he was merciful. He showed mercy to this woman who, according to the strict letter of the law, should have been stoned to death. He showed mercy, strong but merciful and gentle, but also just. He didn't say, carry on, live however you like. He said, now go and sin no more. Meek and majestic, gentle and strong, merciful and just. And as I say again and again through the Gospels, this is Matthew 11. Jesus' words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But then later in Matthew, when he's confronting the Pharisees, again and again, seven times, he, don't know quite how he says it, but he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Imagine saying that to someone's face. He is bold. He is strong. And yet, when the situation requires it, he is gentle as well. Turn with me, uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, um, to Mark 4, which is one of the places I think we really see uh, another of Jesus' uh, diverse excellencies. 
This is Mark chapter 4, page 1006. Mark 4:35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So they go for an evening sail uh, on the Lake of Galilee and we know from the geography of the area so there's a big mountain right near the lake which brings cold air down onto the lake meets the warm air rising from the lake and creates these quick storms that can whip up in a moment. And it's no small storm. Remember the, the disciples, most of them, half of them are fishermen so they're used to sailing and these guys think they're going to drown. So this is a scary storm Yet Jesus, verse 38, was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, fully human, exhausted. Earlier in Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus' family coming to try and take him away and force him to rest because they're so worried about him that he's spending his whole time rushing around teaching and healing and not even having time to eat. I don't know if you've ever been uh, this tired. Um, I remember one Christmas back when I used to work in the city and it had been a very busy time. I think we'd have to you know, work quite late on Christmas Eve. And then on Christmas Day, I was uh, down at my grandparents' place. And middle of the afternoon, I just fell asleep in the middle of the floor for three hours, just lying on the floor. Everything else going around me, children walking over me, adults laughing and joking. So absolutely exhausted. Jesus, fully human, weak, like us, falls asleep in the stern of the boat. But then when he is awoken, Teacher, don't you care if we drown, the disciples say? Verse 39, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. I used to work on the Dover Calais ferries uh, during my gap year. It's uh, up there amongst the worst jobs that I've ever had. Not only did you have to clean toilets um, uh, or scrape every plate in the food court, um, which you had to do six times a day because we did six crossings, but the floor moves quite often, and uh, that just makes everything a little bit more difficult. And on days when it was quite stormy or quite windy, occasionally I'd risk going out on deck. Not once did it occur to me to speak to the waves, to ask them to calm down. It didn't even enter my mind. You know, there are some things that you kind of think, well, I could work on this, or I could pray about it, I could try it, or I could pray. Storm waves... You don't even consider it. It didn't even pop into my mind. And the waves in that day you know, were so severe that they'd still be rolling 24 hours later, which would be the worst time for seasickness because you're sort of rolling around all over the place rather than buffeted back and forwards by the waves. Jesus stands up in the boat, speaks words, and it was completely still, immediately, not the wind stopped and the waves carried on for a while, but he speaks and that was it. 
And the disciples, who were scared before, are now even more scared than of the storm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, uh, Leonora, uh, leading the service this morning, part of our church team, and many of you know Lenny, uh, she's very lovely and um, she reads the Bible with some people here and she's leading the service for us this morning and, you know, she's sort of a, a, a nice person and a, a Christian believer and all that sort of thing. But imagine if you're in a boat with Lenny and a storm came up and Lenny just stood up in the boat and spoke to the waves and they stopped. How then would you feel about Lenny? It's scary, isn't it? Like if Lenny had that kind of power, who is she? And that's what it was for the disciples. Again, they were familiar. God was in heaven, not on earth. God was safely in heaven. And they could get on with their lives down here and try hard and make a few mistakes and generally bimble around. And they're starting to realise, oh my goodness, God's not over there. This guy, this guy in the boat, he might be God. That's terrifying. They were terrified and asked one another, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Human, humble, weak, falls asleep in the boat, but stands up and commands nature with absolute power. So it's right to be afraid, for them to be afraid of Jesus, but yet he is gentle as well. There's this great quote from um, G.K. Chesterton, which uh, Yancey puts as how he begins his book. He says this, suppose we hear an unknown man spoken of by many men, people, the non-gender neutral language. Suppose we hear an unknown man spoken of by many Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some said he was too tall and some said he was too short. Some objected to his fatness, some lamented his leanness, some thought him too dark and some thought him too fair. One explanation might be that he might be an odd shape. But there is another explanation he might be the right shape. Perhaps, in short, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing, at least the normal thing, the centre. You see, some people in some cultures at some times throughout history have objected to Jesus because of his forgiveness. It is not right to forgive sins. People who have sinned deserve to be judged. Viking culture, for example, deeply objected to this idea that people could be forgiven. Justice is what was required. Other cultures, much more like our culture today, object to the idea of Jesus being just, of saying that anything is wrong at all, let alone punishing sin. How is it that we can have 
these completely different responses to Jesus. Is he wrong? Or perhaps, as Chesterton says, he is the right shape. He is the centre. He is the norm. And we, all of us, need to adjust ourselves according to him. I don't know what you thought of when you thought about Jesus at the beginning. And I don't know whether you warm more to the idea of Jesus as strong and powerful and just and mighty and majestic or to Jesus as close and personal and gentle and loving and forgiving. But whichever side we fall on, we need to accept Jesus as he is. And as he is, is always better than as we imagine him. We're going to sing in a minute. It's, it's um, not the. It's it's an interesting tune. Um, it's um, Graham Kendrick, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony. The man who is God. The words were too perfect to not sing it this morning. Meek and majestic, man and God, perfectly in harmony. A man who was God. And so as we go away today, I just want to. Give us that gentle message. And perhaps most of all to encourage you, go back to the Gospels and read again. Choose a Gospel. Mark's the shortest, that's always the easiest therefore to read. And just read through again from the beginning. What would it have been like to have met Jesus and look for reasons to love him? Let's pray that we would. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are better than our imaginations of you. And we pray, therefore, every single one of us coming to your word, we're blinkered by our culture. We're blinkered by our family background. We're blinkered by our upbringing. None of us sees you fully and truly and completely. But we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly as we read your word for ourselves and that we would help one another, being from different backgrounds, cultures, families, that we might help one another to see you more clearly, that we might be a gift to one another to worship you better. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.